FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm so glad to have you all with us for today's show. We are hard up against the 4th of July holiday, of course, which comes up on Sunday. And it's a day that always, always uh, reminds us that we need to ask questions about the freedom we enjoy as Americans. And there are some very concrete ideas of what freedom is, I think, for most people. Um, The freedom to elect our leaders. Uh, the freedom to worship or not worship as we choose, the freedom to move from one place to another without uh, restriction. So there's some very basic and fundamental ideas of what freedom is. But our guest for this show, Sebastian Younger, has written now a book called Freedom, and he looks at freedom, I think, in more complicated and existential ways that are really worth talking about as we approach the 4th of July. You all know Sebastian Younger. Certainly, uh, he became an internationally well-known author with the publication of his book, The Perfect Storm. Um, but he's gone on from there as a documentary filmmaker, Restrepo, which was about his documenting the uh, soldiers in the Korngol Valley, which at the time was probably the most dangerous place, certainly in Afghanistan, to be a soldier. It's a riveting documentary. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It was a a winner at the uh, Sundance Festival. Um, And of course, he's written a number of other books. Um, A Death in Belmont is of particular interest to me because it's a very chilling story about Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, who, in fact, the younger family knew he worked for them. Um, DeSalvo worked for the family. So we're going to talk about all of this today. But um, first of all, let me just say, Sebastian Younger, it's a pleasure to have you here for Political Rewind. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we uh, plunge into the details in the book, um, tell everybody what this book documents. Right. So my book's called Freedom, and it's an inquiry into the nature of freedom and how human groups have uh, preserved their autonomy in the face of more powerful groups that might kill them or enslave them. But the personal component was based on a trip that I took, uh, a trek that I took some years ago with uh, two or three friends of mine. We'd all been in a lot of combat. and we started in Washington, D.C., and we walked along the railroad lines, these sort of swaths of no man's land that crisscross America. Uh, we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C., up to Philadelphia. And then instead of continuing to New York, New York as we planned, we turned west and we headed for Pittsburgh and we, and we crossed Pennsylvania on foot along the railroad lines. That we, we called it high-speed vagrancy. Um, we weren't hopping trains, obviously. We were, wa- we were walking. And... We were existing below the radar in these sort of strips of unmonitored land in America along the lines. It's private, it, you know, it's private property. It belongs to the railroad lines. You, you're, it's illegal to be there. Uh, there's no cops out there, but if they think they're out there, if they think you're out there, they'll come looking for you. And they did several times for us. We managed to evade them. Um, and you know, we were sleeping under bridges, 
and in abandoned buildings and cooking over fires and drinking out of creeks and uh, somebody shot at us in Pennsylvania and, you know, all kinds of stuff happened. Um, but we, you know, we did this off and on for a year through every season. And um, we, one of the things that I really liked about the railroad lines um, was that it's not the Appalachian Trail, right? You're supposed to be out there and it's all, it's gorgeous, right? But there's no sort of societal component to it. We were marginal people on the sort of edges of American society. And we walked, you know, railroad line goes through the middle of everything, right through the ghettos, right through the farms, the wealthy suburbs, uh, the wilderness. I mean, go, you get, we got to encounter every aspect of American society and we had to do it without being so troubling or intrusive that, you know, we would get picked up by the cops. There's a mysterious nature uh, to this book I think it's not until about page 75 where you actually talk about the men that you are walking with. Um, we, we know about them. You refer to the fact you're out there. But you chose not to tell us personal stories about your, the, the people you're with. You, you describe them in, in very generic terms. What, what was your thinking about not grounding this a little bit more in the individuals who you're traveling with? I mean, I could have. It would have been a different book. It would have been more of a travelogue, um, which classically, you know, typically talks about the people who are doing the traveling. Um, I didn't want us to be the topic. I wanted America to be the topic, the, and, and Americans to be the topic. And I wanted um, the issue of freedom to be the thing that was being explored. The the um, uh, you know, we all had complicated histories, and you know, two of the guys were vets. The other two were journalists. Me, one of them, and you know the. the I didn't want to get distracted by that. In fact, in one point, at one point, I mean, I didn't even name us, right? I mean, at one point right. I, in, the, in the incident where where we were getting shot at, um, the bullets went harmlessly over our heads, but we had all been in combat. So you can imagine the reaction we all had to that. And the only weapon we had was a machete. And, and I say, one of us grabbed the machete and ran a wide circle to try to get around the shooter and come up behind him and incapacitate him. I don't even say who it was that did that. And and so what I really just did not want us to be the point at the very, very end, the last, literally the last paragraph, I sort of spill a couple of personal details about me and another guy who happened to be getting divorced in the middle of all this, um, not divorced from each other, <laughs> divorced from the women we were married to. Uh, and uh, so the, the, um, you know, that was just at the very end. And, it, and, and it, it, I feel like where it came and the minimal amount that I, of time I spent, you know, talking about it, it didn't, didn't threaten to distract from what I was trying to do with the book. I think what you just said is really important to people who read this book, because in many ways, this book is a rumination about America, about the history of America, about what America means to people as they encounter uh, various aspects of society here. You're a time traveler in this book in many ways. There are times when uh, you describe walking and it might as well be you walking on a trail in 18th century America just as easily as walking today. And, and I think you do that intentionally. I think you want us to feel this sweep of history around you and, and us as readers um, and, and I was wondering, first of all, if you, you believe I'm right about that. And then yeah. you have this passage early in the book that I would love to have you uh, read from. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. So just as a little, I, I do agree with you. And just as a little bit of background to that, a, a context for it, um, the book's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think, which are the ways that human societies have typically been able to preserve their autonomy in the face of a, of a more powerful foe. Um, and the, the most, most elemental form of maintaining your freedom is just running away from the threat to it. And um, there are very mobile groups like the Apache in the American Southwest for hundreds of years who were able to maintain their autonomy from the Spanish and then the Americans by just being too fast to catch. I mean, even cavalry couldn't catch them. Uh, so that's my, you know, my point in that first, first section is that, you know, people have maintained their freedom often just by walking, you know, including escaped slaves who were able to make their way up north on foot to the um, Underground Railroad. Uh, so walking is a very important aspect of maintaining one's freedom. And, you know, in a sense, we were doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, I should say we were we were carrying everything we needed on our backs, um, 60, 70 pounds. We were walking 10, 15 miles a day. It was extremely hard, physically hard. And we also were under constant threat of getting picked up by the cops and the engineers would call you in on the on the train. So if we we had to figure out how to know when the trains were coming so that we could hide so the engineers wouldn't see us and call us in. I mean, at one point, the cops were looking for us in a, in a helicopter, right? So it was a serious business. And we got very, just to sort of add this final component, because I'm sure the settlers had this as well, the threat for them being the native peoples of, of central Pennsylvania, who didn't want them there. Um, uh, we got completely tuned into our environment, right? So, you know, the freight trains, you, you could sort of, they went fairly slowly, like 60 or 70, and you could sort of hear them coming. Um, the passenger trains would go by at 120 and they were on you before you knew it and they weren't very loud either. And, and so what we figured out is that you could feel it. And I don't know what we were actually picking up, just some vibration in the air or coming off the metal of the rail lines or something. But we got so tuned into our environment that we could sort of sense something big and fast was coming our way. And we paid attention to that and we'd hide. And then this passenger passenger train would slam by you know, at 100 miles an hour. And so we were very, very uh, in tune with our environment, which I imagine the early settlers were as well. So I'll read the passage uh, that you're referring to. This is talking about the early settlers making their way westwards along the Juniata River, where we walked, uh, in central Pennsylvania, heading west towards the Ohio River Valley. Um, the Juniata was a, a uh, this is all preface, the Juniata was a major mobility corridor for settlers, for the natives, uh, cut straight through the Allegheny Mountains. And so it's been used for thousands of years by, by people that were going east or west in Pennsylvania. Okay. They were trappers and traders and fugitives from justice and young men scouting land for their families and eventually the families themselves. Many came on heavy oak frame wagons that were caulked like boats and carried everything, food, tools, crockery, fabric, maybe an heirloom, maybe an heirloom quilt that the forest couldn't provide. The wagons were low slung for stability and tented with canvas and had, and had iron strapped wheels six inches wide that had no shock absorbers whatsoever. The men walked with long barreled flintlock rifles over their shoulders and the women rode if they were, and the women rode if they were pregnant and walked otherwise and the children were up and down off the wagons all day long. These people made their way up the western bank of the Susquehanna through the Blue Mountain Gap and then turned onto the Juniata, which ran fast and clear all the way from the great escarpments of the Alleghenies. She was the only river valley that led west in the entire state and became a threshold of sorts to a better life or an early death 
for thousands of settlers who headed into the wilderness without any intention of returning. 300 years later, we walked through a cluster of camper trailers between the river and some standard gauge railroad and then climbed onto the tracks themselves. I love that because it's just that. It's that you are following a historical, the westward movement. You're following history. The history of America is a push ever westward. And you were headed westward at that point. And I, and I think to some extent, as I read the book, I, I didn't see much difference except for the modern uh, uh, things around you, the, 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 the trucks, the trains. Uh, you were marching through the same kind of landscape that the people you describe in that section of the book are. Yeah, I, there's an interesting concept called the fall line. And so the major rivers of the mm-hmm. east coast of, of the United States are navigable by, by deep draft ships up to the point where um, there, there's the first set of uh, waterfalls, which are, reflect the sort of geology of the area. And the alluvial plain is, you know, the rivers are quite deep. And then you hit the beginning of the Alleghenies, basically. And there's a series of falls and the ships can't go beyond that. And after that, settlers had to move on foot. Um, with wagons or horses or whatever, and it was much slower and you couldn't bring as much stuff. And so the wilderness sort of began at the fall line. And, and on the Susquehanna River, the fall line happens right around Harrisburg. And so Harrisburg was part of the sort of civilization to the east along the coast. And right after Harrisburg began the wilderness, began what was called Indian Territory. And if you, if you cross the Susquehanna on this ferry and then set out uh, up the Juniata, you were on your own. You know, and you, you built a cabin up there, you know, in, the, in one of these valleys and started planting corn and trying to homestead up there. You know, the, what these people did is they'd have a rope attached to the top of their chimney because they made uh, chimneys out of um, logs and mud. And sometimes they'd catch fire and threaten this, uh, to catch the whole house on fire. And so they had ropes in the top of the chimney so that if it caught fire, they could pull the whole chimney over before it set fire to everything. You know, there was no fire department, in other words. And so when they started going up the Juniata, they really were, you know, effectively going to Mars and um, in the sense that they had no help from society at all. They were on their own. And uh, and the Juniata, I should just note the word Juniata means standing stone in Seneca. And there was a, a, a people that lived along that river. Uh, I mean, the railroad lines were laid on the old settlers' roads, and the old settlers' roads, you know, followed the Indian trails, and the Indian trails followed the easiest passage through the mountains. So that's where how you get the railroad lines there. But the so the Juniata, the, the word Juniata means standing stone, and there was a people, a native people that were long since eradicated during the Indian Wars, not by not by settlers, but in sort of tribe on tribe conflict, um, who were um, uh, who, who who had placed a huge stone obelisk uh at one point along the river a uh, carved with the the symbols of their tribe of their people and when the whites came in um in the 1700s i mean white people had seen this stone right but when the settlers really came in and the land was given up by the natives to the to the colonists um the, the stone was gone this 15 feet high it was huge it was incredibly heavy and it's never it's never been found and no one knows where it is, and but they don't even know how they moved it. I mean, this is a pre-horse, pre-industrial you know, industrial society, right? I mean, these people are on foot. How the hell did they move this thing? Like, nobody knows, and it's never been found. 
So you you let, let's talk a little bit in terms of all this about you and your definitions of freedom. Because as, as I said a little while ago, uh, I think that your definitions of freedom are a little bit more existential, perhaps, than what we think of traditionally, especially on a holiday like the 4th of July. So as an example of that, um, you tell us at one point in the book, in talking about the people who went west, you say, freedom on the frontier was a kind of mirage. The closer you got, the more danger you were in, and the more you needed your neighbors for survival, which just meant obeying their rules rather than the government's. Freedom and safety seemed to exist on a continuum where the more you had of one, the less you had of the other. It, so that's interesting to me, because when you talk about freedom in that context, you're talking about something much bigger than just whether we have the right to go elect the person we want uh, to be the president of the United States, or we're free from the king's rule, um, or whatever. This is a much, this is a much more of a the kind of freedom we're talking about in terms of the human spirit in a broader way. Yes. Yeah, the human spirit and the human animal. I mean, the ba most basic form yeah. of freedom. Yeah, the most basic form of freedom is that you can't be uh, attacked and killed or enslaved by another group, and so. You know, with people that were bridling under the constraints of the government and of the church in the in the you know colonial era in America, um, they ventured into the wilderness where you're really on your own. I mean, just think Daniel Boone, right? Nobody was really telling him what to do, but he lived in tremendous fear of the of the of the Indians of that area um, because they you know were constantly trying to kill, torture, and kill intruders on their land. Understandably, I think you know. So, so the way that the settlers dealt with this is that they went into the wilderness in groups. And those groups um, were just big enough to fight off an Indian attack and um, or not. But they had a chance. Uh, a lone family really couldn't hope to. Uh, so there was an absolute obligation that if there was a sort of um, a, a warning of a, 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 an imminent Indian attack, that, the, that every person had to collect at the sort of local fort that, that was there were these, these stockade forts that are very primitive, but they were built sort of everywhere. And, the, and the, the, the outlying farms and families would collect in these forts. And everyone was obliged to, part, to participate in the group defense, and particularly the, the adult males, the adult men. Um, the, the strictures about defending the group were so severe that if you, if you didn't, you were just thrown out of the community. And in fact, you actually had to carry a weapon. Uh, a gun, a rifle, a, a scalping knife, and a tomahawk on your person at all times, because no one knew when these attacks were coming, and and be committed to using them up to the point where you yourself were killed defending the community. You had to be prepared to do that, or you would be shunned and mocked and eventually cast out of the community. In other words, forget about the draft in Vietnam, right? There was absolutely no freedom of choice in terms of whether you were prepared to fight and die for your community. You absolutely had to, but you were free from the government. And what I would say is that the, the word freedom really is properly used, I think, in the context of, am I going to be unfairly oppressed, controlled, enslaved, killed by an outside group. Mm -hmm. And history is littered with examples of outside groups that came in and slaughtered and enslaved, you know, populations that they could dominate, right? Uh, including, you know, white, uh, you know, Europeans in North America with the native populations, of course, to include those examples, right? Um, but when you talk about freedom within a society that you're willingly participating in, when you say, you know, I want my freedom. 
it starts to suggest that you see the government as an enemy group that might enslave you. And what you're really talking about, you're talking about your rights. Rights are given by the group to the individual and should be given fairly and without bias uh, to everybody equally. And no extra rights should be given to powerful people, right? I mean, the same laws that govern everybody, govern generals, govern presidents, govern senators, govern police chiefs. You, you, no one has extra rights, no matter how powerful uh, or how much responsibility they have. Um, but when you start talking about freedom in the context of a, demo- of a working democracy that we're all uh, participating in willingly, by choice, you're starting to suggest that the government itself is the enemy. And that, of course, is antithetical to democracy, and democracy is a form of freedom. So really, it's sort of I think it's sort of like healthier in terms of the society and the political discourse to talk about one's rights within the group that we have formed called America. You talk about that when you talk. I love the, the section of the book in which you talk about the building of the railroad. First of all, the idea for how the railroad was conceived and then the actual building. And you say, you remind us that the land, there were enormous amounts of land to build the railroad. And you remind us that the land was seized under the principle of eminent domain, which holds the government can force the sale of private property if it is overwhelmingly in the public interest. But the important part of that is you say, that's two irreconcilable forms of freedom were at stake. A nation's freedom to maximize its own prosperity and an individual's freedom to own and control yeah. land. And of course, prosperity won as it usually does these, these days for sure. Yeah, and there's a, you know, there's a good rationale for that. I mean, the, um, the economic social welfare of a nation brings enormous good to everybody. And if there's one stubborn farmer who just will not let the transcontinental railroad go through <laughs> with all of the economic benefits that would come to the Ohio River Valley and then eventually to the entire nation's economy. I mean, societies have the right to, cons- to, to limit your right, your right, your individual rights um, for the for the general good. And, you know, for example, our government tells us that we do not have the right or the freedom, if you want to call it that we do not have the right to drive on the left-hand side of the road, right? There is no form of freedom that allows an American citizen to drive on the left-hand side of the road until society says, you know, just right now you can because there's construction and there's a cop here and you can just go around, right? But all of these rights are given by the group to the individual and um, on a more mundane level, but it's quite instructive. There is no law preventing you from cutting a line somewhere, you know, at the bank, at the post office, even the security line at the airport. There's no laws against it. Right. I mean, you can walk around where you want, whatever. Um, But there's an enormous amount of social um, pressure to abide by those rules. And there's people that would, you know, there's people who would who who wouldn't hesitate to murder a, a foe. Right. Who won't cut the line at the grocery store. You know, that social pressure is enormously powerful. But if you're if you run up to the security line at the airport and you say, hey, everybody, my daughter's getting married tomorrow. I'm going to miss my plane. Do you mind if I go next? Probably the line will say, yeah, of course. And congratulations on your daughter. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, just as an example of, you know, we need to understand our rights are bestowed by the community. And when you reject the community's rights and responsibility to articulate the individual rights that we all have. You're basically saying, I am not part of this project. I see the government as actually an en- as my personal enemy. 
And then you're really not talking about a democracy. And, you know, in a democracy, there is recourse through the courts. There's recourse through the ballot box. There are many instances of oppressive societies and ghastly rulers who need to be overthrown with force because there is no recourse for the for the for the um, for the public. But in this country and in, in, in democracies, there is recourse. And so that's why the use of violence, the threat of violence to get your way after an election or a law you don't like or what or, re, or government regulations that you're bridling under. Um, the use of force in those circumstances is actually the opposite of freedom. It's the opposite of democracy. You, uh, you, you make a point about that. You say the inside joke about freedom is that you're always trading obedience to one thing for obedience to another. Yeah, I mean, humans do not survive alone in nature. They die immediately. Drop almost any American into the uh, Bob Marshall wilderness in the middle of the winter, and um, they're dead in a couple of days, right? And, um, and, and you know, that truth is, it plays out in, eternally in, in many different contexts. So I, I, one of the examples I looked at, that, you know, we get our safety, and our safety is tied to our freedom, right? I mean, if you're not safe, if you can be killed or oppressed by other people, you will not be free. Um, I cite, just a little detour here, I cite a group called the Yamnaya, who are a nomadic, mm. very warlike nomadic group from the Eastern Steppe 5,000 years ago during the Neolithic era. They fought on horse-drawn chariots, you know, before the horse was commonly used uh, with battle axes. And they were sort of the, they traveled without women. They were like the first motorcycle gang, basically, right? And so they carved their way through Europe. They invaded the Iberian Peninsula. And 5,000 years ago, over the course of about 100 years, um, they seemed to have wiped out the entire male population of Iberia and clearly mated with the women, right? So the Iberians had a massive radical loss of freedom because, because they could not defend themselves from the Yamnaya. So that sort of group defense is critical to our collective freedom uh, when facing an enemy. And so, I, and this isn't, you know, this isn't all Stone Age history, right? This is happens all the time in the contemporary world. So I looked at a at a, uh, a, a street gang in Chicago um, called the Vice Lords in the 1960s. Mm. And, and in the Lawndale section of Chicago, which back then was very violent, I don't know how it's doing now, I hope a lot better, but um, at that time it was African-American community. And if you were a lone African-American male in this context, you were um, extremely vulnerable to attacks and predation by street gangs that were all around that neighborhood, right? So the, the young men of of Lawndale formed their own street gang named the Vice Lords to protect themselves. And it was successful and they controlled 60 square blocks and they had some various rackets running to make money or whatever. But basically it was a mutual defense pact among the young men of that area. And, and the definition of being a Vice Lord was very, um, uh, it was very, very simple. Like if you saw another Vice Lord in trouble, like in a street fight uh, and in danger, if you were a Vice Lord, you ran towards him and helped him. And if you weren't a vice lord, you ran the other way. If you ran the other way, you were not a vice lord. And so the, w the way the group punished a transgression like that, you know, failure to help a brother in, who was in trouble, right? The, 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 the way they punished that wasn't they didn't beat him. They didn't kill him. They, but they just put him in a car. The, the offending vice lord who had run away, they put him in a car and drove him into, into the middle of the rival gang's territory. And they just made him get out of the car and walk home. And of course, yeah. he wouldn't make it yeah. right. So that commitment to the public good is is crucial to human society, and it's crucial to any any um, any form of freedom uh, at the most sort of basic physical level. 
Yeah, I, I, I got to get to a break. I got to say, just as a side note, uh, when I was a young crime reporter in the city of Chicago, I covered the Vice Lords and the Blackstone Rangers oh. and those gangs, and it oh, was wow. some of the some of the scariest. Ge- it wasn't as scary as your years covering Afghanistan and other wars, but it had the same kind of element of danger of never knowing what was going to happen next. So I just yeah. thought I'd mention that. I'm way wow. late for a break. Let me get to it now, and I'll be back with more with Sebastian Younger. We're back with Sebastian Younger on Political Rewind today, um, talking about his new book, Freedom, um, which is his uh, fascinating look at a journey he took with friends um, across uh, the, the railroad lines in the eastern United States. And Sebastian, I want to read one quick thing from your book, because I think it's exactly what I talk about when I say you're a time traveler in this book. And, and this sums it up. The railroad lines we followed were there because that's where the settler roads had been, and the settler roads were there because that's where the Indian trails had been. And the Indian trails were there because 250 million years ago, the Juniata River had sawed her way through the shale and limestone strata of that country faster than tectonic forces could lift them up. And you go on from there. But you're, you are walking in a journey that might as well be hundreds of thousands of years old. That's the way I think you saw this journey unfolding around you, yeah? Well, I, yes, I, I came to that. When we were actually doing it, I didn't, hadn't yet done all this wonderful research. And so I, <laughs> I was an ignoramus, right? I mean, I was a, a, I was a pack horse with a heavy pack trudging westwards, you know, at 10 miles a day with my buddies, my brothers. And, um, you know, we were marveling at the natural beauty. You know, we were getting, uh, you know, we're getting water right out of creeks that came right out of the mountainsides. Um, I, at one point in the book, I say it, 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 it was, the water was filtered to, through the, the chert and limestone of that country and tasted as if uh, civilization was still something in the, you know, something in the future. You know, I mean, it really had a feeling of this sort of primal land, sometimes very, very threatening. And of course, in some of these little towns of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of gunfire and a lot of tough looking guys and pickup trucks driving around on a Friday night. And we also had this sort of social dimension of like, we got to be careful. You know, we're intruders in, in, in this place. And um, but it was later that I started doing the research and I thought, my God, how did we pick of all, you know, of all routes that we were wound up on the Juniata? I mean, the gateway. Yeah to the West for thousands of American settlers, this storied route that like no one has ever heard of. And I, I couldn't believe our good fortune that we'd wound up in that sort of, you know, in some ways, historically hallowed grounds. A lot of people died out there. A lot of people died looking for good things or as far as the natives are concerned, defending good things. Um, and in, in a sense, it's kind of sacred ground. So um, let me ask you, uh, if, if you could, you talk a lot about, you talked earlier in our conversation about there's a lot of, that walking has a lot uh, uh, to do with freedom, the ability to move uh, uh, freely from place to place. And in fact, you tell us early in the book, you remind us of that really before World War II, uh, what was the percentage of cars that Americans had compared to after the war? I mean, or during the Depression, very few people had cars, yeah. right? 
Yeah. So walking was a typical way of getting from place to place. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, in the uh, out West, you know, people use horses uh, much longer into the 20th century than I think people realize. I mean, most harm, uh, most homes didn't even have electricity until the 1940s, I believe. Um, And, you know, during the, um, during the depression and the dust bowl, um, I have a friend who grew up then, and, and he said that typically um, schoolhouses were left open at night, unlocked and open at night, because there were so many people, families, traveling from place to place, looking for work, looking for help. And at night, they needed shelter. At least the people with children needed shelter, and they left the schoolhouses open. The schoolhouses, of course, all had wells, and so that they could, you know, the travelers could, feed, could, could water their horses. And they left the schoolhouses open so that families could find shelter as they moved across the land on foot, right? And typically, lone males, lone, you know, adult men uh, would not go into the schoolhouses. They were expected to sleep sort of in the rough outside in the fields, mm-hmm. or maybe they would um, trade a little bit of work at a farm for sleeping in a barn. But, free, but walking can also be something much darker than a form of freedom. You talk to us about the Trail of Tears, which Georgians are well aware of since the Cherokee came out of Georgia and were marched to Oklahoma. And you have very moving passages about uh, exactly uh, uh, what happened during that, that long, long walk. Yeah, I mean, we all, uh, I, I expect most Americans know the rough outlines of that tragic story. Um, um, thousands and thousands of Native people from um, Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama were displaced um, and marched westwards over the course of years uh, to the, the arid, desolate lands of Oklahoma that ironically became incredibly valuable because there was oil underneath it. And I'm sure that the American government wouldn't have put them there if they'd known the the treasure that they were settling them on top of, right? But uh History has a sense of humor sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, but they, you know, the, the, they, they were walked there, right? Herded by U.S. cavalry and the mortality rates of these Native people, you know, old, young, children, men, women, everybody, the mortality rate would reach 25%. You know, one out of four people would die on the way. And there was um, one young woman named Telene, who was from um, northern uh, northern Alabama, uh, near the um, uh, Tennessee River, and she managed. She walked. She you know walked all the way there, and at some point, she heard her river, her native river, calling her to come home, and she gathered a little bit of food, and a knife, and um, a way to make fire, a flint, and she she slipped away from this intern, basically internment camp, and over the course of two years, she walked 600, 700 miles by herself eastwards walked back home and finally got you know living up in the ridges you had to avoid the roads and everything and you know the white people um you know surviving off the land which she knew how to do she was a native person and she walked 700 miles and finally made it home and lived out some portion of the rest of her life she had an early death unfortunately but she lived out the rest of her years uh in her home territory um an honored member member of a of a white community of a small white town that's freedom. That was freedom. Someone Absolutely. Who, who marches for the freedom. I mean, you're, again, your book is filled with these examples, which you don't even necessarily say to us, oh, this is freedom, but it becomes right. clear as we read yeah. the book that and that's true. 
Yeah, and clearly someone like her, I think, has the right to consider the U.S. government a, her, an enemy, right? I mean, she she properly could use the word freedom because the U.S. government was treating her like an enemy, right? And in turning, forcing her dislocation and in turning her, she was granted no rights whatsoever. Um, uh, and, you know, that's where I differ, you know, with some political voices in this country that in recent months since the 2020 election saw the U.S. government as somehow you know, the enemy of America. It's just completely not complete nonsense. But Telenate, I think, had the right to see it that way. And, you know, just a, a, you know, a side note, the Seminole in Florida were the only tribe, you know, the U.S. government in the 1800s try, mounted two incredibly costly, bloody wars trying to subdue the Seminole that had retreated into the swamps of central Florida. And, you know, each time the Seminole just handed them their hat, right, killed hundreds and hundreds of soldiers completely defeated U.S. forces in, in Florida. And the government finally left them, you know, 1850s, I think, just left them alone. And um, they existed autonomously beyond the fringes of American society, you know, until the last members of the Seminole Nation that were sort of incorporated back into white society, you know, that didn't happen until the 1930s, like within my parents' lifetime. Um, and they never signed a treaty with the U.S. government. They're the only tri tribe that has never signed a treaty with the U.S. government. They are a free people. I mentioned in, in introducing you at the uh, beginning of the show that um, one of your credits is the documentary Restrepo, which, by the way, if, if anybody out there in our listening audience has not seen it, you, it's, it's a brilliant depiction in completely new ways. It breaks ground in terms of how we are living in the midst of warfare in Afghanistan in the Korngol Valley. And, um, and I think it's available on, uh, on uh, Amazon, uh, if I'm not wrong, yeah. Sebastian. People yeah. should look it up. So the reason Thank I mention it now is you, from Restrepo and the men in, who you were embedded with in Korngol to the last patrol, where you're now back home with a number of uh, veterans from Afghanistan, and, and then the book, Freedom, that comes out of your association with the last patrol guys who went on this walk with you. I'm curious how you all viewed freedom. Uh, what were you like in, in Cornwall with the guys from Restrepo? Was there, freedom, was there a sense of freedom there in that you were operating on your own. Um, obviously, you were in constant danger. I'm just curious how you thought of freedom in that setting and then compared it to when you all got back home when you were kind of feeling like, ooh, we belong back there. Right. I mean, just on to take you on a completely literal level, like an American base in a war zone is a little mini, it's like an embassy. It's a little mini postage stamp piece of America where all you retain all of your private rights as a citizen of the United States. You can't be arbitrarily imprisoned or killed or, you know, what have you. Like, it, it, you retain all your rights. So in that sense, those rights, in the, if you consider them to constitute a, a broad form of freedom, we, the, you know, the soldiers and myself as a journalist were completely free as American citizens, even though we were in a, in a, on, on a, on a little, tiny little outpost in Afghanistan. You know, most obviously our freedom was directly threatened by attacks by the Taliban and had they overrun the Restrepo, which, you know, frankly, there was some possibilities of that. It happened elsewhere. Had they overrun Restrepo, we would have all been killed or captured and injured um, 
absolutely hideous outcomes, right? So, uh, in this, you know, it, w- it would have been the Yamnaya all over again for us, right? And so, so our freedom from that came from the, the dedication that that every all the soldiers had to mutual defense of the outpost, which might include them giving the, up their lives to protect their brothers to protect that little postage yeah. stamp, right? Um, but if you want to broaden the conversation a little bit, there's a good argument to be made that there's many kinds of freedom and and anything that diminishes your sense of self is a reduction in your freedom. I talked to a guy, he's not in the book, but I talked to a guy who'd spent decades in prison for an awful crime, and he, but he rehabilitated himself. He educated himself in prison. He was relieved on, released early on good behavior, an extraordinary gentleman. And I said to him, I felt a little stupid saying it, but I said, you know, is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? And he just laughed. He was like, are you kidding? Of course it is. He's like, you can't be a drug addict in prison. You can't even be distracted. Um, there's no iPhones in prison. Uh, you, there's no, you, know, you don't have a TV in your cell. Like, you got nothing but time. And eventually, you're going to have, eventually, eventually, you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And then you're a free man and free in ways that many people on the outside are not free. And so, you know, what I would say is that this country's incredibly high levels of addictions to many things, addiction to social media and to iPhones, addictions to drug, drugs and alcohol, to pornography, addiction to comfort, to ease, to mechanizing everything so that we don't have to get off the couch. I mean, all of those addictions amount to a loss of human freedom ironically, in the context of an enormously free democratic system. Yes, yes. It's the free democratic system around them that often gives them access to the very things that are enslaving them. I am way late getting to our final break. Let's do it now and come back with Sebastian Younger. Uh, We're talking uh, to Sebastian Younger just a couple of days before the 4th of July, the day that we celebrate the freedom that the freedoms, plural, that we have in this country about his new book, uh, Freedom. Sebastian, I've been sort of hesitating with whether I'm going to mention this to you or not, but I'm going to. And if we all we completely go off the rails, I apologize. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Be- I'm curious. Be- Please, because your because your book uh, talks in such great detail about the railroads, because being on the tracks is such an important part of the journey, because the trains rushing by are such an important part of the journey. I thought of, I thought of the book that first made me awaken to the understanding of what freedom was, and here we go. It was when I was about eight years old and read for the first time, The Boxcar Children. Do you know The Boxcar Children? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's going way back in my life, too. I don't remember in detail, but yeah, absolutely. I, you're absolutely right. <laughs> These were children who were left without their parents. They had their own house in a boxcar on a train siding. Yeah. And the thrill that they were living freely and independently, I still feel how visceral it was at the time. So. I don't mean to diminish the conversation, but no, I no. just think that's interesting. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, that was a classic. Yeah, that was a classic story because it plays to a very deep sense that we all have of being in control of our, our of our circumstances. I mean, you know, one yes. I mean, there's a million definitions of freedom, but one useful one is that you can't be unfairly controlled 
by somebody else. And, um, you know, there's another wonderful book. And then I think they made a movie out of, out of it called my side of the mountain. Um, you know, a boy, um, creates a home up on a mountainside and, you know, that's a little lonelier, you know, it's always easier to do these things with other people. The, la- the, 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 trip that I took along the railroad lines, had I done it by myself, it would have been absolutely terrifying to be out there. And instead, cause I was with these people that I loved and trusted, it was wonderful. Um, but the, the, I think the ideal is that you have your own little microcosm and you're not controlled by the, the government or the, the grownups or whatever, whatever your potential oppressor is, and you're making your own decisions. That's enormously appealing. And, um, you know, I think the question is, I mean, that can be true as it was for us along the railroad lines for small groups of people for brief periods of time. But, you know, the, the truth is we all live in, a, in, a, in an enormous, wonderful, amazing nation of 330 million. And how do we how do we maintain our sense of freedom in that context? Because it's a very complex system that requires us to use a lot of it requires a lot of constraints on our behavior, um, unlike for the, for the settlers in some ways. And, you know, I would say just one way to think about it is that freedom, which is a paramount human value, it's sacred, right? Um, what you have freedom to is freedom from oppression, not freedom from obligation. Your society has the right to ask things from you. You know, it has the right to ask you to storm the beaches of Normandy to defeat fascism so that it doesn't take over the world, right? It has the right to ask you to wear a mask or to stop at red lights or not cut the line. You know, it has the right to do those things. That is not oppression. It's a healthy form of obligation. And when it becomes unhealthy, and sometimes it does, I mean, the government can be overly controlling, of course. You go to the courts, you reelect somebody else. That's how it's worked out in a free society. You um, walked off and on for a year on this journey with your friends um, in different configurations at some points. Uh, and you finally reached the end at Connellsville in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, is that no, right? No, in Pennsylvania, uh, said, Connellsville, Pennsyl- Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I, I apologize. Um, and you, it's the one point, you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, where you told us a little bit more about yourself. You, you were going home to a divorce. So was one of your companions on this trip. And you talk about the trip was an escape, a temporary injunction against whatever was coming. Um, So when you came back from this trip, when you had to reemerge and deal with whatever was left of getting through a divorce, um, what did you end up concluding about the difference between life on the railroad tracks and what you would come back to and what you'd learned. Yeah. And I, you know, I should say just for the record, um, the, the woman that I divorced is, is still a dear friend and a wonderful person. And, you know, we were ending a marriage that just wasn't working. Um, but um, yeah. my experience of divorce was um, much gentler because we were doing it as friends and, but still enormously sad. Right. And the, the, the trip, as you say, was a respite from that sadness one that I never talked about for 400 miles and neither did the other guy about his divorce and the other two guys never brought it up because we were doing something else out there. This wasn't a form of group therapy. Um, but but what what was the difference? It's a whole lot easier back home, right? I mean, carrying 70 pounds all day long <laughs> and dodging the police and drinking out of creeks. That's, I mean, it's, it's thrilling. It's a form of freedom, but freedom takes a lot of work. I mean, freedom in that sense, that raw physical freedom takes a lot of work. The, the Apache were expected apache warriors were expected to be able to move 70 70 70 miles a day on foot 
day after day, right? And the rest of the population, men, women, children, old people, were supposed, supposed to be able to do about half that day after day on foot, right? So freedom is hard work in that context. Then you get home and suddenly you got air conditioning and a refrigerator full of food. And yeah, of course, that's a form of freedom, <laughs> right? Uh, freedom from the, the sort of beast of burden uh, work that, that uh, traveling on foot is. Um, so at the end of the day, as I, as I say in the book, you're always trading. There is no absolute freedom. You're always trading loyalty to one thing to, for loyalty to another. And um, they all have different uh, advantages. And where you are in your moment, in, in, that, in one moment in your life, determines the kind of freedom that, that is probably most important to you. And that may change as your life goes on. I dedicate my book to my family. I went on to remarry and have two wonderful children. And I'd say that my family gave me a form of freedom that I didn't even know existed. And that's emotional freedom. You know, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about them. I'm liberated from my own personal concerns because I love them a lot more than I love myself. And that's in some ways the ultimate freedom. I, I love that. I've said on, on the show, people who listen know I feel this way, that when my first child was born, I suddenly understood what it meant to really love for the first time and understood just what you're talking about, the freedom to give your life over to someone else. And my second child only doubled that very experience. Yeah. So I know exactly what that means. Um, yeah. We're running out of time, but, but, but um, as we approach the 4th of July in a troubled country, in a deeply partisan uh, 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 toxic environment around us. I know you're pretty smart about avoiding talking about partisan, uh, about partisan politics. Yeah. Good for you. I ha unfortunately, I have to do it every day, mostly on this show. What, um, but what, what conclusion do you reach about the direction we're headed? As, as the man who's just finished this book on uh, freedom, are we moving, are we, do you have hope for us right now, or, or are you in some despair about where the country stands? Oh, I'm not in despair at all. I've got some concern. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm a, uh, I mean, I say this happily, I'm a Democrat, I'm an atheist, um, but I really strive as a journalist to be neutral in my analysis. And of course, I'm probably fall short a little bit, but hopefully not by too far. So, you know, what I would say is that the enemy of, um, Freedom in the in a in the context of modern democratic societies, the enemy of freedom is is, is fascism. Um, governments cannot be overly controlling without interrupting without running into trouble in the courts and getting pushed back by the courts. So there is a mechanism for pushing back, constraining government overreach. It's a mechanism that works really really well. I just look at the last ten years to look at Supreme Court decisions in, on that matter. Um, but the real threat to freedom is fascism. And fascism holds that a certain small group of people get to decide the nation, the the the, the, the um, nature of a society, and they get to penalize in any way that they want people that fall outside of that norm, and penalize them, including by killing them. Right? That is fascism. And my father grew up under fascism. Um, he fled. He grew up in Spain and fled fascism in 1936 when Franco came in, then fled fascists again when the Nazis came into France and he came to America because he said fascism will never come to this country. So to answer your question, um, I'm enormously, I'm, I was very surprised by the excesses and the, the, the dangerous frivolousness of the lies that led to January 6th and the nonsense coming out of the former president um, uh, that had been, that was repudiated by the entire GOP establishment uh, leadership, mm -hmm. right? And, and the courts. Um, 
And so I was amazed that that could even happen in this country. But then my father turned out to be right. It, it, barely, it barely shook the democracy. Like the institutions held, um, the, election, uh, the election was carried out um, flawlessly and the democratic system vanquished the, basically the forces, forces of fascism that arose briefly in the, cap, in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Sebastian Younger, we've just run completely out of time for the conversation. It was, it, it was such a pleasure talking to you about your new book, Freedom. Um, we'll post a link on social media to give people more information about the book itself. Um, but, but just I'm very grateful to you for taking the time. Uh, the book is thoughtful, and you always are. I, it's, it's just a real pleasure to get to have a conversation with you. So thanks for being here for Political Rewind. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, we're uh, done with the show for today. We're going to take Monday off. You know, why not? It's a holiday. And be back with you for another live show on Tuesday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you all next week.